that when Facebook first came to East Palo Alto slash Menlo Park, that was one of the first thoughts we had was, this is going to be Detroit all over again. It's a company town. You know, this is one of the reasons why it was so damaging that tech wasn't really engaged in these conversations. To not also address pressing issues in your own backyard feels out of touch. Hi, you're listening to a podcast on tech philanthropy, how innovation and equity can forge stronger communities. I'm Courtney Duffy. I'm Amaya Bravo France. I'm Evita Chavez. And I'm John Winino. And we are all students in Professor Megan Ming Francis's class on philanthropy and social movements. As millennials, we've come of age at the same time as the tech sector, which has left an undeniable imprint on our lives. Never has this been more apparent than right now. We're actually weathering the COVID-19 crisis and recording this podcast over Zoom. As the tech sector has grown, tech founders have become a powerful new generation of leaders in philanthropy, with different strengths and weaknesses than their predecessors, who came from legacy industries like oil, steel, and auto. For better or worse, the cities where their companies have laid down roots are now synonymous with and intrinsically linked to that tech sector. The companies create jobs for communities, sure, but job creation alone does not offset some of the negative outcomes of their presence. As students of public policy, urban planning, public administration, and business, Amaya, Evita, John, and I decided to take an interdisciplinary lens to the question of how tech philanthropy can harness innovation to invest in their local communities with a focus on promoting equity. So let's start at the beginning. Tech certainly isn't the first industry to take over its immediate environment. Amaya, you're an urban planner. Companies have taken advantage of community infrastructure in service of their own goals for hundreds of years, right? Exactly. And that's what we call company towns. If you look at the history of development, we see that large companies have been extremely influential in the way that towns and cities have developed. Starting in the 1800s, a lot of the biggest companies of the time, which you know were primarily focused around industrial manufacturing, as well as other natural resource industries like oil and logging, they actually created their own towns or cities centered around their work. There were places like the textile capital of Lowell, Massachusetts, the coal mining town of Lynch, Kentucky, and then maybe some places that are actually quite still famous today, like Hershey, Pennsylvania, which as you can probably guess, developed around chocolate. I loved going to Hershey Park as a kid, but I had no idea about its origin as a company town. So these companies would build things like housing, schools, health centers, rec and entertainment facilities, right? Since a lot of times there was nothing there to begin with. Yeah, and the conditions ranged from really great updated facilities that were free or subsidized for workers and their families to sometimes quite horrible conditions that they lived in, where they were basically forced to spend their wages only at the company-owned stores, which basically trapped them there in that system. And later we saw less instances of companies establishing completely new towns, but rather sort of establishing themselves and being a dominant force in an existing city. Um, For instance, Detroit got the nickname Motor City because of the auto industry. In these cases, the companies actually provided less benefits to their workers because they could rely on the city's infrastructure and services. Yeah, and I think to your point, Amaya, about living conditions and and 
providing for their employees, it's so important to emphasize that it wasn't like these companies were just giving stuff away for free out of the goodness of their hearts, right? It, it really was first and foremost about making their business work. Totally. And something that we saw in a lot of the company town cases were that once the company wasn't making a profit or didn't want to continue working there for whatever reason, they would just up and leave. The community there was left without their jobs and a lot of times without the services or infrastructure upkeep that they had been reliant on. Avita, you shared with us a case study where this exact situation took place, right? Yeah, so this summer I heard about this really interesting small rural town called Nukuyama. For people listening who've probably never heard of it, it's a 500-person town two hours east of Santa Barbara. In 1950, Arco discovered an oil cache there and built a whole town site to entice people to work there. In other words, it became a company town. Yeah, exactly. It pretty much perfectly fits the description you just gave us about company towns. Arco guaranteed everyone houses with no down payments and low interest rates. They built schools, commercial spaces. I mean, everything the town could need, they built. And they built it all around their headquarters. But then, as you said, happened with most company towns. In the 1970s, Arco finds out that there's not as much oil there as they thought there was going to be. And they just pack up and leave. So this whole town that was built around Arco and is essentially a single source economy is left behind and the economy totally suffers. The town center, which is the old Arco buildings, just lay vacant and start deteriorating. So I'm guessing this is where philanthropy comes in? Good guess. So there's a local family farm where a lot of new Kuyama residents started working after Arco left. And in 2012, the family that owns that farm decided to acquire Arco's old headquarters as a legacy impact investment. And what's really interesting about this investment is how it changes over time. They use the investment dollars to found the Blue Sky Center, which was originally intended to demonstrate sustainable living practices and technologies. But once they started settling into Nukuyama and meeting local residents, they began thinking differently about the space and how they could play a better part in the community. We talked to M. Johnson, the director of Blue Sky Center, and she told us about the approach the center ended up taking. So one of the first things that we did and were able to do because of that large investment from the Family Foundation was to spend two years between 2016 and 2017 um, hosting community meetings and hosting dinners with community members. Um, And the whole goal during that time was to listen before we act and and build trust and get people to come to this vacant space again and start thinking about what they want to be addressed by a new entity. M says that they started seeing Blue Sky Center as a piece of infrastructure to be put into the hands of community-driven efforts to create community ownership versus private ownership. This new perception changed their larger mission, and they started funding things that have never really been funded before. For example, they established an artist residency program to generate creative approaches to policy and architecture by putting artists in those non-traditional spaces. And they built relationships for a farm-to-table program because the community didn't have access to fresh food. It sounds like Blue Sky Center really became a place to kickstart things and to help develop the skills and infrastructure needed for the community to sustain itself. Yeah, and David Keitzman, who was on the board for the Blue Sky Center, says that this success comes from what they call a fast failure approach. 
you know, failing fast is it's so true. Like there's a lot more opportunity to experiment. There's a lot more opportunity to, to hear community voice, to build community quicker. That kind of creative problem solving is a core value at Blue Sky Center and how we address problems and, and find solutions for them. I think it's completely different than any other organization I've been a part of. The center is such a great example of how locally driven bottom-up philanthropy can make a positive change in a community. Well, at least in a small rural company town like Nukuyama, but you brought up a really good point earlier. Company towns don't exactly look like what they used to. Today's company towns are often in more urban areas where large communities and urban issues existed long before the company showed up. And I wonder if there are some lessons from Nukuyama that can be adopted and applied in a larger urban company town like the Bay Area where tech is growing. Yeah, and it's important to recognize that the stakes are higher in a place like the Bay. I mean, there are just so many more people there. Bigger risks have bigger consequences. Yeah, it's tricky to see how this applies to the Bay Area because tech philanthropy is such a fascinating and risk-embracing new sector. We've had a few tech philanthropists around for a while, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Omidyar Network. But we're also seeing some new organizations like the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Emerson Collective because tech is one of the fastest growing sectors in our global economy. And do you think that tech coming into philanthropy is different than other big industries? That's a good question. I'd say that the forward-thinking ideas that tech is bringing to society in many ways mirrors how they're impacting the philanthropic sector too. So in addition to traditional grant-making organizations, they're setting up philanthropic limited liability companies that can use a whole wide range of tools beyond grant-making to advocate for causes. One example would be Piero Midiar, who founded eBay. He and his wife started the Midiar Network, which was one of the first tech philanthropy LLCs. We heard from Gus Rossi from Midiar about this earlier. If we can, we can do for-profit investments, traditional grant making, and we can support advocacy and, and we can support uh, change using whatever tool we think is more appropriate for the, for the moment and for, for the challenge that we identify. The other thing that sets these tech philanthropists apart from old school philanthropists, many of them are more inclined to embrace philanthropic risk because embracing risk is how they became successful. That fast and experimental culture, which can lead to tech startup success, got them to where they are. And this culture is reflected in many of the tech philanthropist organizations. Or even Blue Sky Center. Exactly. And it's not exclusive to just Omidyar. We asked Caitlin Fox from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative how tech philanthropy differs from traditional philanthropy. A couple things are, are, I think, unique about some of the new tech philanthropy. One is that a lot are formed in spend-down models. So they're not putting their money into an endowment and expecting it to live on far past after their lives are over. And I think that just means that um, there's a lot more resources going out the door each year, and they're very engaged um, in how the money is spent. Another is that uh, I think there is a little bit more of a willingness to experiment and to take risks. I think a lot of young tech philanthropists start their foundations when they're young. And so I think they're just more risk embracing in general. And also taking risks and trying new things is how they found success in their companies. Blue Sky Center is all about trying new things and taking new risks too. 
But like Amaya said, in larger urban contexts like the Bay Area, where the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is located, aren't taking big risks like these a whole lot riskier? Yeah, although tech philanthropists seem more inclined to support social innovation and and entrepreneurship than traditional philanthropy, they're still susceptible to the same funder-grantee power dynamics that have always existed. So tech philanthropy also needs to be mindful about how they collaborate with community partners to push for systemic change. And this seems particularly relevant as more tech philanthropists are having to address issues in their own backyard. Speaking of backyards, the biggest news that I've heard about tech philanthropy lately is this big $4.5 billion donation from Facebook, Apple, and Google to affordable housing in the Bay Area. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yep. Housing affordability is definitely one of the local issues that a lot of tech companies and philanthropies are starting to tackle and, and it's starting to get a lot of media attention too. Yeah, there has definitely been a recent movement that's been calling attention to just how expensive and scarce housing is, particularly in bigger metropolitan areas where tech companies are. I think that as an urban planning student, I've been talking about this a lot with my classmates, but it's safe to say that a lot more people in general are paying attention recently to the issue of housing affordability and just the effect that this has on communities. I mean, we've seen a lot of media attention recently about this in the Bay Area, where most tech company headquarters are. And you see some of the wealthiest people in the world living next to homeless encampments. Yeah, it seems like housing is an issue wherever tech companies are located. Definitely in the Bay Area, Seattle, New York, but also the newer tech hubs like Austin. And I I wonder why that is. Yeah, so tech companies do tend to be located in bigger cities, and most cities have these housing problems. But in the context of the Bay Area, we are seeing one of the worst cases. The causes of the housing crisis in California are super complex, though, and it's a problem that's been building for decades with factors like the way property is taxed, environmental and design regulations, and just like anti-growth sentiment from certain stakeholders. But the rise of tech companies has exacerbated a lot of these existing issues by creating a lot of higher paying jobs at once in an area that already wasn't building enough housing to keep up with the need. I wonder if tech fully realizes the impact it's having in those places. Well, a lot of communities and organizations have been calling on tech companies to help address the problem. What we've seen in recent years are a number of these companies beginning to realize not only do people feel they bear some responsibility for the housing crisis, but also that having a local housing crisis is just frankly really bad for business and the future of their companies. Here again is Caitlin Fox from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative talking about how she's working within the tech community to address the Bay Area's housing crisis. They knew that this was a big crisis, and I think they were also convinced that they knew they had to do something. And I think that was partially motivated by being good citizens and wanting to give back in their local communities, but it was also an acknowledgement that they would not be able to continue as thriving businesses if they didn't address this. They're having a really hard time recruiting employees, not just because some of them honestly, even with very decent salaries, can barely afford to live here, but also they don't want to live in a region that is not equitable and diverse and vibrant, where their child's teacher can live in the same community, that the nurses that serve them and their family can live in the same community. I think it's a desire to live in a place that's reflective of your values. And so I think that a lot of companies here have realized that they're having a really hard time 
recruiting and maintain and, and retaining um, employees when the housing crisis is as pronounced as it is. And I think that CZI and a lot of tech companies have acknowledged that the growth of their companies has had an impact on the region and that we do have an obligation to address that. And I think to focus on issues nationally and globally are so important, but to not also address pressing issues in your own backyard um, feels out of touch. I think a lot of folks in the tech industry are starting to realize that the industry they work in brings a lot of economic growth to the region, but that economic growth necessarily benefiting everyone there and can actually cause harm. Catherine Bracey, who is the director of Tech Equity Collaborative, has been organizing the tech community to begin addressing a lot of the structural issues that are driving inequality in the region, starting with housing. When we started thinking about what do we need to change structurally in order for a growing tech economy to be creating broad-based opportunity, solving the housing crisis was obviously the first thing we thought of. I mean, you, you can't really live in the Bay Area and not be thinking about this all the time. It's a company town. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the reasons why it was so damaging that tech wasn't really engaged in these conversations. Um, and by that, I mean tech companies and tech workers. They play such an outsized role in the economy and yet weren't really plugged into what was going on. So while you have some organizations like Tech Equity advocating for better housing policies, we've also been seeing a lot of financial investment from tech in recent years. While there were some smaller contributions to local housing funds here and there for a couple of years now, in 2019, we saw three of the biggest companies, Google, Apple, and Facebook, commit $4.5 billion to housing efforts. While a lot of people are happy that companies are contributing money and land to housing, there's still some uncertainty about the detail of how it will all be spent and how big the effect it will have. And a question that a lot of people had when these big announcements were made are how much will the direction of funding be guided by the communities who are being the most affected by the housing crisis, but who also have been working on this issue for a really long time already. Catherine addressed the difficulties of beginning this conversation when she first started the Tech Equity Collaborative and of how do we try to bridge the divides between existing movements and those who want to support them. A lot of times people in tech want to show up with solutions first, and it's really hard to just sit and understand and listen and be self-critical and not just try to move to action. Yeah, the importance of listening to community needs was something that Caitlin from CZI also emphasized when she was creating the Partnership for the Bay's Future. The partnership was the first collaborative effort between various philanthropies, tech and biotech companies, and other businesses in the Bay Area to address housing at a large scale. So far, it's raised over $500 million for investments in affordable housing production, as well as local government capacity to pass housing policies. From the beginning, the partnership recognized the needs for community input at every phase of developing and deploying the funds. I think from the very beginning, we wanted to be very responsive to community and the design and implementation of Partnership for the Bay's Future because we knew that people in, in the communities on the ground would be the closest to the problem and the closest to the solutions, and it would need to look different in different communities. And so we didn't want to design this um, in an ivory tower away from the communities that, that are experiencing this very intimately. So both upfront as we were designing 
designing the challenge grants, the investment funds, the kind of the the scaffolding for this um, partnership. We did it very much in a iteration with the communities. We really were trying to get a lot of different perspectives in the room as we were designing this with community members, elected officials, faith leaders, advocacy organizations, developers, both for and nonprofit. So it's truly been designed with the community to address the needs in the community. We tried to find folks who, if other community advocates said, Jennifer is representing me, they would say, I, I think she will do a great job representing us. So we actually spoke with that same Jennifer that Caitlin mentioned. Jennifer Martinez is a chief strategy officer at Pico, California, and community members named her as someone that they really trusted to represent them in the process. Pico, California works with community advocates on the ground to push for racial and economic justice. Jennifer talked to us about how she was able to bring diverse perspectives about the need for more tenants' rights. Prior to that point, tenant protections was hardly even on the table at all. It was we, the focus of conversation, in at least in California and the Bay Area, is really about how do we produce more housing, whether it be affordable housing or market rate housing. There was very little recognized need for tenant protections, even though there was a growing tenant movement and the San Francisco Foundation the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and others who helped form the partnership uh, were helpful in recognizing tenant protections as a legitimate need and a legitimate policy choice. It's really encouraging to hear that tenant protections are now a priority in the partnership. I think Caitlin shared with us that seven jurisdictions in the Bay Area have already received policy grants to implement tenant protection legislation alongside a local community organization. This all reminds me a lot of what M was saying about how Blue Sky Center originally thought that there was a specific solution needed in Nukuyama, but ended up broadening their approach once they spoke with the community. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a general theme here about the importance of community input shaping how funding is distributed, but also the need for a more comprehensive approach to addressing local issues. Our conversations with these experts have certainly given us a lot to think about as we consider how tech philanthropy can harness innovation to promote equity and forge stronger communities. What is the role, though, John, of tech philanthropy in this moment? Well, COVID-19 is certainly top of mind for everyone. I think this moment is really calling on tech philanthropists to show bold leadership to support our most vulnerable. I think some encouraging examples coming out of California include Google.org funding direct cash transfers for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and also how funders are pooling their resources to support the undocumented during this time of crisis. What about tech philanthropy's role, though, Avita, for longer-term issues like housing? Yeah, housing is definitely a problem that's not going away anytime soon, and I think it's really going to be exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis. But the exciting thing about tech getting involved in housing is their propensity for taking risks. This, on the other hand, could have really big consequences, like we've talked about, because coming in with a certain solution without talking to the community might be creating a whole new problem. As we learned from everyone we talked to, taking the step to stop and listen to the community and then act based on community input is key to making sure philanthropy doesn't create unintended consequences or lose local trust. Caitlin said something really important about this. 
I will say that one thing that that has scared me a little bit and why there's been, I think, a little bit of of reticence to tech philanthropy is this idea of disruption. You know, that tech can disrupt a sector and bring all these new ideas that haven't been thought of before. That can be powerful, but it can also be very damaging because, again, what you might be disrupting are really important outcomes. And so to come in and think that with a fresh pair of eyes, you can, you know, cause all this new change. I think you just have to enter it with a lot of humility that that may not be the case. I do think that there's something really magical that can happen when you couple the expertise of someone or an organization or a community that has been doing the work for a very long time with new resources, a fresh energy, and a willingness to fail. Um, When you bring those things together, I think that there can be a really, really powerful result. Yeah, I think it's really important to not only let communities drive the movement, but also to be open to supporting these movements in different ways. One thing we've seen with tech philanthropies is that the way a lot of them are structured often lets them support movements like housing as a human right through different strategies. And something that we're hearing from community organizers like Jennifer is that there's a huge need for advocacy funding for policies that can lead to long-term structural change at the governing level. Certainly communities need to lead. Communities need to decide what they need for themselves and their neighbors. But philanthropy can be a really instrumental tool in helping to advance that, not just by making contributions, but by also using their voice in amplifying the voice of the folks who are making the demands and and calling for their needs. It's worth acknowledging that there are people who feel uncomfortable about tech money, you know, sort of influencing government. But if tech can avoid movement capture and instead support existing community demands that are calling on government to address their needs, that could be a way to ensure something like a sustainable large-scale supply of funding for housing in perpetuity. We really need large-scale policy change that's going to make a radical difference across our communities. Um, it's really important that philanthropy and corporations have stepped up to make financial contributions to build more affordable housing um, and have stepped up to say that tenant protections are legitimate right. But the scale of the problem is such that we need to all continue pushing our state government and God willing, eventually our federal government to be making some of the big policy evolutions that are needed Um, to get to scale. Jennifer's point about investing in long-term policy solutions is so important, especially as we think about how to protect communities in today's tech company towns from the sort of fallout experienced by communities like Nukuyama before Blue Sky Center. Yeah, I think to that point, Courtney, not only is tech or tech philanthropy that's focused on housing not necessarily going to be around forever, but also that tech's financial interests are not aligned with certain community demands or policy proposals. So far, it seems like the tech sector is supportive of a lot of state and local policy changes around tenant protections, property taxation, and zoning changes to allow for more housing, as well as contributing to things like community land trusts and affordable housing construction. But certain proposals like uh, increasing taxes on large companies or limiting the number of new employees to the rate of housing development are probably things they're much less supportive of or in many cases will directly oppose. We've seen certain tech leaders like Mark Benioff, who is the founder and CEO of Salesforce, calling on the tech community to support taxes on themselves for housing and homelessness. So it'll be interesting to see if more companies and leaders get on board, um, but that's something that definitely remains to be seen. 
Tech is investing in these solutions right now, but tech money alone is not enough. To solve these complex problems that have been around for so long, I think we all agree it will take cooperation across industries, sectors, and communities. Oh, 100%. Totally. Well, that's it for us. Special thanks to our professor, Megan Ming Francis, our classmates, and of course, the experts we've interviewed along the way. M. Johnson and David Keitzman of Blue Sky Center, Caitlin Fox of Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Gus Rossi of Omidyar Network, Catherine Bracey of Tech Equity, and Jennifer Martinez of Pico, California. 